make sure that I look at the camera and say hello to people with them online. But uh, I just want to make sure I don't forget that. How are you feeling this morning? As you come in, the church smells good, doesn't it? Right? You see the baking uh, out there, and and feel free if you if if I lost you somewhere in the next 25 minutes and you're hungry and you go, when is he gonna end? And you know, feel free to grab something, and it's for a good cause. And I was just thinking about how good this smells, and it reminded me of the very fact that um, what we are doing today with the bake sale is to support, um, you know, especially the elderly people in Ukraine. And I remember the Eastern Church. If you ever been into Eastern Church, smells very good as well. So as you smell, you know, the greatness of the baking uh, goods that you're eating, I pray and I, I hope that you also say a prayer for our brothers and sisters and our friends in the country of Ukraine. My name is Lawrence Chung. Great to be here with you this morning. Um, we did the nine acknowledgement this morning, so I won't repeat that. But I was just thinking about, it's quite fitting, I think, for me to mention that we're in this very building called a Japanese hall, and it is a very significant landmark for our Japanese Canadian friends. I don't know how much you know about their history in, the, in, in our country, and especially in this part of the country. Uh, their parents, their grandparent generation was displaced quite a bit uh, during World War II by the government. And I think we should not go and notice that, that we're thankful for their offering, the hospitality, so we can actually meet here regularly in their house, in this great hall. I've been thinking about what to share with you this morning for the last couple of weeks, and, and I, I must admit, there were many noises, there were many distractions out there that really didn't help in terms of my preparation. And, and, and to name a few, the lingering effects of the, the pandemic on the people, especially healthcare professionals, the racial tension that we have still within our cities, the stumbling effort and ongoing challenges for us as a society to reflect, to reconcile, and to relate to our indigenous friends, populations, neighbors, faith communities, the effort to be relevant. And of course, I'm sure you think about this quite often, the events that are happening down in the States, um, all knowing the troubled times that we lived in, and pushing us, perhaps, hopefully, to think about our personal and our collective journey as the followers of Jesus in 2022. So that begs the question, what does it mean for us to live and to be faithful to our call as Christ followers in this day and age? In 1976, this is quite some time ago, um, there's a guy, his name is Francis Saver. He, uh, he was an American theologian and apologist he published a seminal book. I don't, I don't know if any of you have read it. Title, How Should We Then Live? And the subtitle is The Rise and the Decline of Western Thought and Culture. Now the book was a series of essays on the progression of thoughts on the three domains over time in our history, um, namely uh, philosophy, science, and religion. And it was supposed to be, um, you know, it was considered, I should say, a factor and now historians look back to that gave rise, um, at least partially, uh, to the American evangelicalism, which I'm sure many of us 
have a lot of feelings about these days. It was a book that I read in my undergrad years, and uh, when I was involved in church and also in um, campus ministries, it was a, a book meant to help you know help us to have dialogue between the so-called sacred and the secular. Now, the intriguing thing about this book, to me, beyond the content, was actually the title. It was a book filled with historical facts, concepts, and ideas. And yet, the title was highly pragmatic, extremely pragmatic. How should we then live? Now, it had to do with, basically, as the title says, how we live out our faith on a daily basis in the messy trenches of our regular surroundings. So this very question, this very question, how should we then live? And that was a lingering question for me, I would say for the last couple of weeks, as I examined the contours of our social and spiritual landscapes. And perhaps I should say it's beyond the last couple of weeks, or like the last couple of years, maybe for some of you too. And I didn't ask that question as, as someone working in ministerial world as a pastor. I asked this question as a doubting Thomas who wonder where the goodness and grace of God is in the failures and the transgressions of the church in general. I asked the question as a husband navigating various seasons of marriage. I asked the question as a father of two preteens thinking about what kind of world they're going to be living in or what kind of world they are living in right now. And as someone who cannot sleep well at night with an unnecessary hardship, thinking about that, that people go through in my workplace at the hospital. And finally, as someone who stumbles a lot and wants to be faithful to, to the Jesus way. I don't know if you share these thoughts, feelings, or sentiments, or questions, but if you are, you have company. Now, one of the benefits that we have, if I can call them benefits, of the pandemic is we are given a lot of space, whether you like it or not, especially you know, during the early times of you know, the pandemic, to reflect on what we really believe, what we truly believe. The partial lockdown and the social distancing just gave us a lot of chance to examine our faith. Like, what do we, what do we actually believe? And what am I called to be? And what am I called to do? And to whom do I actually rest my faith in? Or perhaps the question is, what is negotiable and not negotiable in my spiritual practice, in my spiritual rhythm? What is the value of being in a communal setting that we're in today, whether we're here in person or over, um, over the, um, on YouTube live, as you are watching wherever you are? What does that mean for us to be followers of Jesus? There are two major cycles of the liturgical calendar, as you know, and we, you've seen the graphic, but let me just highlight this for you. The first, we have the period between Advent, from the end of November, roughly, to Epiphany, or as the Eastern Church calls it, Theophany, celebrating the coming, the revelation, and the incarnation of Christ. So the Christmas season, as you know, is the pinnacle of this cycle that we have the expecting, the waiting, and the here and now that new hope commences as Jesus was given birth or was, you know, was here, came here. 
After Epiphany, we move forward to the next cycle and beginning with Lent for a period of 40 days before Easter. And it ends with Pentecost, which is celebrated last week. And this period and this cycle is a time where we observe the temptations of Jesus in the desert, the betrayal of the disciples, the tragic and yet glorious events of Easter that we get to witness Christ's redemptive power and the grace for all of us. So the work is done on the cross and the new life begins. So an Easter tide arrives from Easter Sunday to Pentecost Sunday. And that goes beyond just saying, Christ is risen, and then people respond, Christ is risen indeed. It's much more than that. For seven weeks in Easter time, we reflect on the wow factors of the resurrection. What does that mean? We meditate on the resurrection of Jesus as a precursor to our own resurrection. We ruminate on how the Easter events gave us a new birth into a living hope, as First Peter tells us. And we rejoice the fact that death has been swallowed up in victory. Has to, we have to repeat this. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And we are in a new creation. We don't need to look backwards. There's a new life. So we arrive today on a day of what we call Trinity Sunday. It's the beginning of ordinary time. Uh, I think that's how we pronounce her name. Mac Rowe, I think that's how we pronounce her name. She was an artist from uh, Loch London uh, in England. She painted this very pretty version of the Trinity um, at the chapel in Iona, an island just off the coast of Scotland, uh, where pilgrims have been going for thousands of years, for centuries, I should say. I have it on the screen, uh, if, you can, if you're close enough to, um, but if you're close enough to the front, you can actually see um, a, a copy uh, that I, uh, I purchased, and it's beautiful, it's beautiful. Um, hopefully this will help you as you uh, prepare yourself for the table later on, that will help you center. What is ordinary time? Or maybe you have heard this season, it's called the season after Pentecost in some prayer books, or maybe you've been to other churches, that's what they call. Ordinary time is the longest period in the liturgical calendar. So after all these spectacular and crazy events in Pentecost, we move into a time of ordinary. Now, if you follow the lectionary on, on, the, on your daily Bible reading, it actually reflects that reality. It's ordinary stuff that we're reading. On Sunday readings, that we, we focus on the, what we call the ordinary stories in the gospel books. And maybe this is why we're called uh, this is called the ordinary times. Now last week, if you remember from the reading of the text, not from a sermon that Nelson preached, from the reading of the text, was Acts 2. The text of Acts 2 where we witnessed the filling of the Holy Spirit among the believers and we see what looked like flames of tongues of fire settle on these folks in the early church and they were speaking in other languages, which is really weird for, for them. Now the First Nation versions put it this way. It says, suddenly the sound of a great windstorm came from the spirit world above and could be heard throughout the house where they were sitting. They saw flames of fire coming down from above, separating and resting on each of their heads. 
the Holy Spirit hath come down upon them and begin to fill them with his life and power. New languages began to flow out from their mouths. I wonder, and perhaps I think that's true. Some of them probably in that room would remember John 16, when Jesus said the Holy Spirit will be the one true spirit guy and will lead them down the path of truth. Now, even when the Jews accused these people saying, you guys are out of your mind, you guys are drunk, what are you doing? The early church was not deterred. Peter stood up and gave the first ever sermon in the church. And at least 3,000 people came to faith and were baptized on that day. But then, what happens? What happened afterwards? What happens after they come home? After church? What's next? Ordinary time, and I think it's the space where things have calmed down. It is a period when we turn off the lights of the festivals. No more church holidays, no more celebrations, no more bake sale. Life goes back to normal, right? Speaking in tongues, everybody's very happy, getting ready to sort of like, for what? We don't know. Everything goes back to normal, isn't it? We get up and prepare breakfast and lunch at six o'clock, half asleep. Those of you that are parents, you understand what I'm talking about. Rush out the door to catch the bus or the train or merge into the eternal traffic jam in our city. We go about our work. We go about our family lives. We go about our personal journey. According to the chronos time, right? The Monday to Friday schedule, hoping for a little bit of a respite on the weekend, especially if you don't have to serve on Sunday at church. But there's more to us, right? There's, there's more to us than this just Monday to Friday schedule, or even the weekend schedule. Ordinary times may appear to be mundane, uneventful, or even tasteless, but it is the crucial time for us in the calendar where we, as followers of Jesus, where we go deeper in our daily walk with God. Now, do you remember last year, we actually called this time in our preaching series, the unordinary time. The unordinary time. Nelson sent me a text, uh, I think it was around Tuesday or Wednesday, and he said, you know, I am giving you a quote. And I, I looked at it, I go, I have to quote. I have to quote this again. Sister Joan Chistner, who doesn't love jo Sister Joan? Everybody loves her, and she said this. Ordinary time is a time for making the faith the force of daily life. This is the time that makes dailiness, stability, fidelity, and constancy the marks of what it takes for Christians to be Christian the rest of the year. Did you catch that? What it takes for Christians to be Christian the rest of the year. How do we embody the teachings of our faith in the seemingly ordinary days in our calendar? Or in other words, how do we deepen our faith? How do we dip, go deeper in our knowledge, but also in action, so we can actually participate and synchronize in God's act of reconciliation in this city, in this context we're in, in this juncture of our time? Ordinary time is the time between times, 
And through this time, we learn to walk the walk of our spirit-filled convictions. It is also a time when we learn how to live with God in our lives. And how do we do that? By centering ourselves onto the reality that Jesus is risen for us. And local churches like this one we call home, Artisan Church, bears the responsibility of helping you and I to understand who this risen Jesus is in our context so we can live faithfully and of course, joyfully, I hope, in our respective journeys as individuals, but also as a faith community. And I cannot overemphasize this more. It is very important that we look at how we live with Jesus. It is the way that Jesus set forth for us. And the church's responsibility is to help people understand how to live with God in our lives, our messy lives, our difficult lives. So Trinity Sunday is a Sunday where we begin a journey of hope. Not based on some lofty ideas or wise saying your, your speaker quoted just now, but the hope based on the following three things. First, the majesty and the greatness of our God, the Father God, as the, as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Secondly, the sacrifice and redemptive reality of Christ, Jesus as our King who died for our sins and risen for us that we will celebrate and remember in a few minutes at the table. And thirdly, the, the companion of the Holy Spirit right here, right now in our context. So as we transition between the story of Jesus, sort of the top half of the, of the cycle, to the story of people of God, the bottom half, now, I understand this is not about, you know, sort of like the first half is all about uh, Jesus and the second half is all about us. This is about the, where the readings are in, in, in the liturgical calendar. But as we move sort of forward, I'm reminded that this is not as clean as the graphic portrays. Because in a way, the story of Jesus is, has much to do with our lives. And the story of pe the people of God, our story, is deeply connected with the story of Jesus. It's not a separate entity that, has to, that we have to find a bridge to go, through, you know, to go back and forth. In a sense, they overlap. And I think this is why in this year, in, in, the, in the church calendar that we call Year C, uh, in the New Testament readings, we have, it's basically on a travel narrative uh, of Luke chapter 9 to 19. And the Old Testament readings for this season center on a journey of the Israelites and the interactions of Yahweh God as the chosen people. It's the story of God's people in a journey. It's the good and the bad and the ugly of the journey. And yet, in the midst of the highs and the lows, the victories and the failures, God is always present with his love and for his people. I think one of the things I believe God is asking us to do and during this season of ordinary time is, if I can say to refresh and we examine the way that we go about how we relate to God, or in other words, spiritual formation. So namely, if I can name a few, our prayers, the way that we read the Bible, the way that we, we read maybe other spiritual books, the way that we serve, the way that we act 
the way that we stay silent, the way that we take direction, the way that we take our Sabbath. Or you may call this simple, a simple thing called annual spiritual tune-up. Kind of like, you know, like the weather is getting better, right? And what do you do? You take your bike out. And, but before you ride your bike, hopefully, if you don't do it well, you'd have to take it to the shop to make sure, you know, the chains are oil and all that, right? You know, you have to do your tune-up. This spiritual tune-up, if I can, call, I can call it, is not a mystical exercise where it only happens at the all alone together silent retreat at Rivendell on Bovine Island, okay? Although, if you have registered and you're available, congratulations, this is a commercial time, by the way, just in case. <laughs> Uh, I couldn't go because I, I have I have things planned ahead of time. So, but I think Nelson, they can, should they talk to you? Where's Nelson? Should they talk to you? There you go. I, I do take a little commission out of that. So just in, in case you're wondering, if they can, if you can go, go. It's not a mystical exercise. It only happens when we go away, and so somehow God is more real at Rivendell. This tune-up is necessary as we navigate this new reality we're in, this new world that we lived in. It's not easy because the world has changed. We have never lived this life in this world before. And there are many other things that have changed this world that we feel very foreign to. And even though we feel, we feel like that we're familiar with the world that we lived in, but it's very foreign to us. The landscape in front of us are so unpredictable. And I ask myself that question. How can I go about my life and not think about, I want, this, I want the clock to turn back to what it used to be? It doesn't work that way. But there's one thing that we know, and that is the constant factor that God would not change. The promise of God with us, the Emmanuel, He's always with us. We're never alone. Never. And I think that's where the story of the Holy Spirit comes in. John 14. In preparing for the journey to the cross, a.k.a. the crucifixion, Jesus comforted his disciples and he said he would leave them temporarily and come back for them later. Now, we read the text, and it's easy for us to understand because we're reading it from a you know, retrospective you know, sort of angle. But the disciples were confused, not knowing what Jesus was saying. Like, what do you mean that you're leaving us? Like, what are we going to do when you're gone? And who's going to teach us? Who's going to be our ringleader? What are we going to do when, when, when you're not around? And Jesus said the following in verse, um, uh, in, in verse four, uh, 15 to 19, uh, chapter 14. If you love me, Obey my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth, and I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Jesus said, don't be afraid. I'm sending you another comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was introduced as a person, replacing Jesus, another comforter. Now, the Holy Spirit is a person, not a bird, okay? I know some people think the Holy Spirit is a bird. It's not, okay? In some translations, 
In some translations, the word fortify is used to describe the Holy Spirit. So it's very different from the comforter. The word fortify is used to describe this entity, if I can use that term, to us. The Spirit's work is to support us, is to strengthen our hearts, and to make us strong for this journey that we're on. Paul says, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his hearers. And the fact, in fact, together with Christ, we are hearers of God's glory. But we are to share his glory. We must also share his suffering. The Holy Spirit reveals truth to us as we read earlier in John 16. The Spirit speaks truth into our lives. The Spirit enables us to find joy, even in our hardship, even in our sufferings. When we walk firmly in His footprints, we gain the strength of the Spirit. We need to stay true to the path. All of this because, God's, because of God's great love that has been poured out into our hearts by the Spirit. Romans 1 to 5 reminds us. 5, 1 to 5, I should say. So no more condemnation for us in Jesus. We're set free by this redemptive reality at the cross. But to live out our passion, our call for God, we need the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us. His gifts are for us to use when we serve our neighbors here and beyond in our, in our communities. His fruits, the spiritual fruits that Galatians talked about, are there for us to, if I can say emulate, but also to enjoy. And this joy, the joy of the Spirit, are in us. So to live in the Holy Spirit is to acknowledge that we don't live our Christian walks on our own. Not by our ideas, not by our knowledge, not by our passions, preferences, talents, emotions, or the weather of the day, but by this very supernatural power, the Spirit keeps us rooted and grounded in God's truth. Yes, I get it. The love of God redeems and sustains, but we almost, we're almost certain to run into unnecessary troubles if we just put our heads down and soldier forward on our own without the Holy Spirit, without God. Robbing us the joy of being in Christ in the here and now. So I think, in my opinion, therefore, contemplation and silence are very important elements. They're like oxygen to our soul. And this is why what Nelson does in his spare time, so to speak, as spiritual director, is actually vital. Because we're surrounded by noises. We're surrounded by all kinds of you know, things coming from above and within, internal and external ones. It's very hard to hear the Spirit speaking to us in our business. But when we release and permit ourselves from the daily grind, we go away for a few minutes, we go away for a few hours, or perhaps join a retreat and go away for a few days, silent retreat, no phone, no distractions, sometimes not even a journal, sometimes not even the Bible we can begin to tune into the sweet voice of the Spirit, reminding us the true path, encouraging us when we're alone, and holding us in love in a supernatural way.
Some of you know that I uh, work as a clinical chaplain at a hospital. Um, so usually people think I, what I do on a regular basis is hold hands and pray. That's what people think of what I do. Um, I know that there are all kinds of jokes about this on YouTube, by the way, in case you're interested. Hold hands and pray. Um, but a lot of the work that I do is actually um, beyond that. And because otherwise, you know, you don't pay people to hold hands and pray in hospitals these days. A lot of the work that I do is uh, what we call clinical spiritual assessment. Um, and so sometimes I enter into people's lives and when they're very unwell, they're very sick. And so, you know, introduce myself, sit down, talk to them. And the thing that I do is, that I, let me put it this way. I ask questions, you know, they tell me their stories sometimes. But the focus is always that you're, you're unwell or your, your loved one is unwell. How do you cope with your crisis? What resource do you have when you cope with your crisis? Do you actually know what resource do you have? And I'm not looking at it from a, just a therapeutic perspective because of what I do as, again, as a spiritual health practitioner. I often ask them about spiritual resources. When you're sick, you do theology. When you're terminally ill, your theology is right here, also right here. You ask questions about who God is and about what you're going through. So to whom do we put our trust when the going gets tough? What numbers do we page? What numbers do we call when we need help? As I said to my students um, often, I said, if you want to figure out the, the theology of the person, listen to the prayer. Listen to the prayer. The spirit is vital, not just for us as individuals, but also for us as a community in our understanding of our mission as a faith family. When we discern and we pray for things as a church, we speak, right? When you pray, you speak and you listen. We speak our supplications, we speak our concerns, we speak our requests, we say them out loud or silently. And then we listen for peace. We wait for the Spirit's comforting voice, sometimes through the scripture, sometimes through verifications um, with people that are close to us, you know, or we call it our fellowship. Or sometimes we have what we call theophanies, a visible manifestation of God through the Holy Spirit. It doesn't ever happen very often, but it happens. So we're entering into the summer months. We're entering into the ordinary time. I think it is also a critical time for us as a church. We have to make a lot of decisions. We have to uh, have a lot of directions you know, to set. We have to do a lot of plannings. How do we go about this as a faith community? I think the passages last week and today, they have much to teach us as we seek the spirit of truth together as a fellowship as a faith community, searching a way forward, not into the unknown, for God is with us. On most Sundays, I usually sit right there at the back and when I come to church, and, and sometimes, and this is a confession time by the way, sometimes I do what I call prayerful people watching, this is what I do. And which is basically observing people coming in, you know, 
you know, people come in, people sit down, people talk to one another, observing people coming in, in and out, and sometimes I don't know you, and I don't know who you are, and, you don't, and, and I, sometimes I know some of you. I say prayers for you. I don't know your names, I don't know your stories. I look around this room today, I look around the camera, even though I cannot see you. Some of us have been here for a long time. Some of us are new. Maybe we're doing really well. Things are going smooth. Finally, things are settled down and I'm able to, to breathe a little bit better. And maybe some of us are here because we need a space to rest our weary souls or to quietly vent our frustrations with people and with God. Or perhaps to nurse the spiritual wounds of the past. But we're here together worshiping and we seek the presence of God. And the Spirit is with us. What holds the church together, brothers and sisters, is not polity, it's not structure, it's not theology, it's not ethnicity, it's not history, or any hot button issues of our days. It is the indwelling Spirit that is among us, granting us that space where we can have peace and joy when we genuinely and authentically relate to one another. Or simply put, when we do life together, being mindful of the Spirit's work within our own, but also in other people's lives. Trusting God is still active and alive and real in all circumstances within the stories of this, um, if I can call it, meta-narrative here. I'm gonna wrap it up with one last quote. I have never done this before in my entire speaking life, but I'm gonna give you a quote from a sermon that I heard last week. Not from Nelson, but it was so good that I cannot resist not to share with you this morning. So it's from my buddy, uh, Shield from Pilgrim Church last week. Nelson, you know Shield well, okay? And the quote is a commentary on John 14 by, um, uh, from this uh, woman called Mita Stemper. She is a um, Princeton Seminary grad and a Presbyterian minister uh, in the States. And it goes like this. this again, this is a commentary on John 14, 8 to 17. The promise of the Spirit does not come to completely faithful, courageous people, already loving one another and the world boldly, or whether worshiping in spirit or truth. It comes in the midst of confusion and fear which has made them unable to grasp what he is saying. And it is the answer to that Jesus makes the promise of the Spirit. Emerging from the mutual love of the Father and the Son for one another and for us, into which they and we are invited. And at the very moment when such grace seemed most beyond the graphs and hours in this text, John 14, 8 to 17, Jesus tells them that simply in their love for this person, which is Jesus, they know they are opening their hearts to the presence of God and in them in the form of another advocate, the spirit of truth, who will guide them and embolden them for love. The spirit's love sustains us, us in church. So here is the invitation if you're looking for a practical thing to do. 
is to love Jesus with whatever portion of love that we're able to muster today as a community, as, as individuals, and to open ourselves to the possibilities as we take shelter and comfort in the African, the Holy Spirit, who will guide us, who has guided us, and will guide us, and encourage us to love one another for the glory of God. May it be real to us.